What is up, Mets fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Mets Up Podcast, the official podcast of the New York Mets. We just finished a series with the Chicago Cubs. We're going to talk about it, as we always do. Ended well, at least. At least we ended well. It wasn't necessarily great the first few games. I think we have some things to talk about a little bit, but good end to the series as we go into our three-game series with Colorado out in Denver. Should be a lot of fun. Should be a lot of offense out there. Plenty of things to talk about in Mets world. So let's go ahead and do it. Before we do, make sure you guys follow us on all our social media at MetsDup, M-E-T-S-D-U-P, on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. If you want the YouTube version of what you're listening to, go to the New York Mets YouTube channel. You'll be able to find it over there. And if you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Odyssey, drop us a rating, drop us a review, download, and subscribe. Remember, you leave us a review, we shout you out at the end of the podcast. So please do that. We do appreciate it. And yes, I'm taking the intros back. We flew a little bit too close to the sun, I think. We, like, we're like we all about jinxes. We're all about superstitions on this podcast. And we tried, but it seems like whenever we purposely do something, that's when we get in trouble, right, James? Yeah, definitely. Too many theatrics. The baseball gods caught up to us. They were aware. The baseball gods were elsewhere. They were helping the Mets all last week. And then we we it's probably on us to so like hand up for the for the first couple games of the series. Mets did have a little bit of bad luck, especially in game two. So we apologize for that. But a series that started poorly, at least ended well and ended on a on a like a good a good footing to head to Denver with. Yes. I mean, they swung the bats much better in game three than they did game one and two. But even then, like game one, right? That was against, or no, game two was Stroman. Game two was Stroman. We hit the ball hard. I felt like we hit the ball hard in in like most of these games. We just couldn't get a run against Stroman. He's a ground ball pitcher. I mean, we've seen the guy pitch before. He's he's a professional pitcher. He's very good. Uh, It just, it sucks to to get beat by that guy, especially because he loves talking a lot, a lot after the game. And to be fair, rightfully so. He, He did shove. Yeah, this series did have like a, a little bit extra like stuff in it. The Mets and the Cubs are one of those traditional baseball rivalries, a rivalry from before our lifetime when they used to be in the same division. And they, at, going into the, what Thursday night's game, the Mets had also lost six in a row to Chicago Cubs dating back to last season. So it did feel like a little bit of a little like these teams are looking at each other in a, in a certain way. But yeah, the, fir- the first two games of the series are just so incredibly frustrating. I feel like the Mets got all of that out in one shot on Thursday night, besides the fact that Tucker Barnhart was throwing 45-mile-an-hour Chad and we were just <laughs> we were taking hacks at it and couldn't couldn't really, really embarrass them. But Thursday night, every, every guy got a hit and really felt like a, a lot of what didn't happen the first two games actually did happen in that one. No, 100%. I mean, do, do we want to talk about the positives first? Do we want to just be be happy for the beginning here? I think we should go into it. I'd rather end, let's end positive, right? Okay, let's end positive. Yeah, yeah listen to 15 cool minutes of negative cool and then end positive. Yeah, because it's it's going to be, we're going to give you the information you want to hear, of course, but it's going to be a quick game one, game two. Game one, it was doomed. It was doomed as soon as Brandon Nimmo got that 100%. leadoff double and they didn't score him. We've said it before on this podcast, but like whenever the stuff is going too well and then all of a sudden like a little bit of adversity, a little bit of like a little bit of drama there with Brandon Nimmo not scoring, it, it felt dead in the water right then and there. It just felt like a lot of momentum from the weekend actually carried over. And you're like, okay, get this run in. Let's keep the good times rolling. Get the lead. Get the lead. Can't stop. And then it did stop. And you're like, oh, man, crap. And yeah. that's just kind of is what happened. And then I do like the big thing in this game I do want to talk about is Tyler McGill because it was another start where he labored. And like some of the balls that his starts where he's like gone to the fifth inning, like balls I found gloves. It just didn't really happen this one. He was knocked out in the fourth after allowing six, six, and four earned runs. And he fell victim to the long ball. And I think both of those long balls like tell a bit of an interesting story about his outing and the way he sequenced his pitches. First of all, Seiya Suzuki, who we said was going to be a really good ball player, had a great series, good defense, yeah. good offense this whole series, really good ball player. 
just Tyler McGill threw him a first, first pitch fastball right down Broadway and he hit it really far. And then Matt Mervis, who is a lefty, who had been a bit of an interesting prospect. You've probably seen his name on Twitter if you follow any fantasy baseball people. Real unheralded, underrated guy came on the scene last year. He's been really struggling so far, but really, really broke out in a big way uh, in this <laughs> game. Hit a home run, a pitch that was a changeup that really was like on the black that he got, he got his hands out for and put it to the, you know, that that power alley out there in left center. And it was an interesting at bat to me in terms of why McGill struggled in this game because he's a lefty and McGill's slider was working well in this game. He doesn't really ever throw it to lefties. This whole game, he threw just four to them. And he's nervous looking at his run values and his stats so far coming into the league. He's only really actually hit fastballs. So this at bat, it seemed like, because this was the second at bat of the game, seems like McGill really was trying not to throw him a fastball. So he threw him a curveball first pitch, which is a pitch that we've talked about in the show. McGill's been trying to bring along, especially this year. It missed really badly. So he's like, all right, I don't want to throw him a fastball. I'm not going to throw him a slider. I tried the curveball. Didn't really work. So now all I have left is changeups. And he threw him one changeup outside a little low. Didn't get it. And they threw him one more, elevated a little bit. Didn't even get any plate. And he just like got his hands out, like extended and put it out. And that was kind of embodiment of just what, like what Tyler McGill is lacking right now, that extra weapon. Yeah, I feel like when a guy spits on a pitch like that too, especially a changeup, that's kind of not one that you should double up on then. Like, let me let me show him one now in the zone a little bit. And like you said, it was like, it was weirdly on the black, but it was up. And that's not really where you want to leave a changeup, especially for a guy like Matt Mervis, who is a big, strong dude. So, I mean, like he extends his arms. He can crush that thing to left center field like he did. Yeah, McGill just didn't also really have the command. It felt like either in this start, I was, I was, I don't remember who I was talking to. Maybe it was my dad, but I was saying how McGill was, trying to paint, trying to hit the corners, trying to you know pitch on the black, but everything was missing. He wasn't like hitting his spots. It felt like everything was just a little off, missing in, missing out, not hitting the glove. I don't know necessarily what the reason is for that, um, but he just definitely wasn't sharp, which, you know, it's it sucks. It's unfortunate, but this is what's going to happen, especially with Tyler McGill, who's, I mean, relatively still doesn't have that many innings underneath his arm in, in general in baseball. No, even especially coming off last year. But that first change up to Mervis, actually, he got a whiff on it. It was low. He buried it in the strike oh, okay. zone, and he swung through it. And then through a second one, he just it just hung up a little bit. And one thing we should hang our hats on for McGill in the start was the slider looked really good. The second start in a row where I was like, Did okay, this McGill slider looks good. He's getting more depth on it, which is something that he wasn't doing as much. He, like That was like kind of the McGill from 2021. We've had a weird week where we're, we're recalling 2021 a lot. I don't know why. So it's just weird. We're starting to get all these like Instagram and like Snapchat memories when we really started like kicking this podcast and threw out a tweet today about the Mets lineup in, in May on May twenty fifth, two thousand twenty one. You guys, you guys are complaining about lineups. Wait. Here's here's a lineup. Let's just go through that lineup real quick, just for everybody at home, so that they can understand uh, exactly what was happening. Because, I mean, the way you put it on Twitter, James, two years ago feels like a very long time, and weirdly. Was. So May 24th, up against the Colorado Rockies, who were playing, again, like relatively around that time. Playing third base, everybody's favorite, shout out our boy Ernie, sub-tape, Jonathan VR. Okay, not crazy. Francisco Lindor hitting two. And then, now now here's where we get absolutely nuts. James McCann hitting third, which, that's, that's pretty crazy. But you know what's even crazier? He was starting at first base. How about hitting fourth? Everybody's favorite utility player, Dominic Smith, playing left field. At catcher, hitting fifth. Fifth, Tomas Nito. Sixth playing second base, Jose Peraza. Seventh, James is one of your original memes here. Cash Money Maven playing right field. Center field hitting eighth, Joneshwi Fargus. And just just for, you know, some laughs, we had a pitcher hit. David Peterson was hitting ninth because that was still a thing in 2021. Yeah, two years ago feels a long time. Uh, I know Mets fans have had some, some problems with the lineups recently and have been very, very vocal, it feels like, on social media about it. 
but it could be worse. It could be it could be this. It could be Joe Nashwi Fargus and and James McCann hitting third. So at least we don't have that. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Yeah, and you know, now back to your reg- regularly scheduled programming. McGill did have five whiffs on 10 swings with that slider Tuesday night and no hard hit balls. The only pitch he didn't give up a hard hit ball with. And I just, I really can see a future for him, especially now seeing the adjustments Carrasco made Thursday night, which we'll talk about more when we get to that game where he could really lean on that pitch and maybe start mixing in that curveball more. Alex Isert, who's a friend of the program, a friend of mine, used to work right for Pitcher List, lives in Brooklyn. He wrote a great piece on Fangraphs this week you guys should check out about like adjustments that he could see David Peterson and Tyler McGill making. He's a really, really brilliant pitching mind. He wrote wrote his thesis in college about the concept of um of late movement on pitches and really the fact that it's just like how well pitchers can tunnel and it's, it was mind blowing stuff. Really, 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 really sharp kid. But yeah, that it was it was another one of those weird starts for McGill that kind of reminds me of the start last Friday for Carrasco, where like this, the results didn't really look that great, but there were legitimate things to build on. I think that is valuable for Tyler McGill at this juncture. Yeah, we just we gotta take the small battles. Um, I mean, I th- I think we know that it's not like like we saw him have that hot start to the year, and then he kind of came back to earth. There's it's the in between, right? It's the in between with Tyler and McGill. Like he's probably not going to be the best pitcher in baseball, like anything like that. But he's also like very much still a very good starter in this rotation, and we do need him to get right. I don't even know if we get right's the right word, but we do need him to be a little more consistent to help this team. And even even then. The game didn't really truly get out of hand just yet. And the Mets had opportunities too to bring in some more runs. So like we're talking about all the these positive and negatives, but like at the end of the day, like they just had to play a better game in this one at the at, at the end of it. For sure. And this is just one of those nights at Wrigley Field also where the wind is blowing out. And that's just kind of part of the game. And we kind of felt that would Pete Alonzo. Oh, what? <laughs> Gary and Keith were nonstop talking about the wind. It felt like every inning. I love I love Gary and Keith, but it was like any time a ball got hit in the air, it was something about the wind. And I was like, man, this is like nails on a chalkboard for me right now. Like, I know it's windy. We know it's Chicago. I don't need to hear it every day. No, but I mean, it is important. You kind of saw the difference in all three of these games between wind out and wind in and how different it is. And we'll talk more about Pete because he this is only the first of two really cool home runs he hit in this series. But I want to get to game two because a former Met pitched in this series, a former Met who clearly put no added importance on this game, Marcus Stroman. And he got he got two whiffs. Which is pretty good for Strowman. That's like not not a bad number for him at all. And uh, we actually got on the board first in this game. This is one of the few one of the few games that we've had an early lead and actually lost the game because Francisco Alvarez hit a big two run home run early with the wind blowing in. Couldn't stop him. Couldn't stop he's, him. He's so good. He's, he's incredibly so good. good. He's every every single day like, he does another thing. The way he swings the bat, he swings it with such ferocity. The dude does not get cheated at the plate. And what's crazy is he feels completely in control. Like you see some guys take war hacks and you're like, oh, that guy's going to strike out 250 times in a season. But then you see Francisco Alvarez take his war hacks and you're like, oh, this guy's really good. And he like he doesn't even swing and miss a lot. It's crazy what we're seeing with the growth of Francisco Alvarez just in the in the month that he's basically been the starting catcher from what he was at when he first came up to where he's at now. I mean, it's light or night and day. And he's been I mean, he's just been so, so good. 
he's been one of the better catchers in in the National League hitting wise this year. He's he's been one of the better hitters in all of baseball over the last thirty days. His WRC plus over the last thirty days is over one eighty. That's very good. That's very it's, good. It's incredibly good. That that's eighty percent better than league average because league average for WRC plus is one hundred. So when you're one eighty, that's eighty percent better than league average. He, he had five home runs in eleven games. Like he's heading into heading into play on Thursday. Like he is he's so freakishly good and he's so young. Like they we say it every single episode. It really doesn't matter. But I'm just gonna say it every single episode. We just do the bring a minute and yeah, now we do the, the Alvarez half hour. Yeah. And then also just our everyone's favorite stat here. He tied Joe Mauer for the most home runs by a catcher before turning twenty two since two thousand. And he has the whole rest of the season to hit more home runs. He doesn't turn 22 until October or maybe November, one of those months. But he's he's just he's, – he's so freakishly good. And he's – like he's at this point, he's like one of the most feared hitters in the entire Mets lineup. And and there's been a weird rumor that's been circulating around the internet just about what? You want to hear something funny, really, really funny about that stat? You say since 2000? Yeah. He wasn't even born yet in 2000. That's true. He wasn't born yet. That's kind of the best part about that stat. That's wow. pretty cool. That's pretty amazing. crazy. Like there hasn't been one of these guys since the existence of Francisco Alvarez on the planet. <laughs> since he was born, there hasn't been a catcher his age as good. <laughs> you know, hasn't what existed. No, but yeah. So then there's this been this rumor going around that, and it, it kind of got a little more legs because uh, Tomas Nida was activated before Thursday's game. Gary Sanchez DFA. So thank you for thank you for your service, Gary Sanchez. We had a nice week with you. It was fun. The memes will live forever. But we'll see if he gets another job. But hope, hope he does. Hope he stays in the league for a long time. But just the fact that there is still this like growing skepticism about like what Francisco Alvarez's role will be with Tomas Nido back and with Omar Nevarez still like kind of moving through a rehab assignment. It really, it really feels like if this is a meritocracy, like there's almost just no way. Yeah, I mean, if if I were in charge, which I'm not, I mean, Francisco Alvarez ain't going anywhere. But we also know that's that's not the case with us. But I. There, there just doesn't seem to be a world where you cannot keep this guy up. He is like what, like the third best hitter on this team, and that's not even like I feel like hyperbole. He is really good, guys. He's unbelievably good. I know you at home are also agreeing with us. I think that's why there's been a little bit of outcry and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, this is a little bit of the media doing their thing where the Mets were playing well. They had to start. They had to stir something up, right? I no, mean, of course, five yeah. wins in a row that doesn't get re- that doesn't get clicks. That doesn't get views. We've heard from people inside the industry. Oh, you write something negative about the Mets. It does amazing. So you put a headline as a writer who's had a cold week because the Mets have been playing well. And you say like Francisco Alvarez, maybe a guy who can get sent down. Everyone's freaking out, retweeting your articles, talking about it. You tip your cap for for doing their job, but also poppycock has to be. Yeah, there, there, there's a certain buster out there, and I'm using that as an adjective, a buster. It's a, it's a common adjective that's used. And like people like, like to spread. He's a farmer. Spread. Yeah, no, it's an, I'm using the adjective is a buster and it just happens. It happens. It could be any number of journalists out there. And there were a few, so I'm not even going to single out one, but it's just the case. He's, he's incredibly good. I really hope nothing happens to him. But also now from this game, I want to talk about Kodai Sanga because he was coming off his best start of the year for the Rays. I put out a big thread about him earlier this week, right before when I, we thought he was going to start on Tuesday. Did great. Really happy with it. Did a lot of good research. Good. A lot of people told me they learned a lot about baseball savant from this thread they made. A lot of different new parts of the Illustrator, in there, yeah. which is always cool. People be like, yeah, it's a new thing. I didn't know. Now I can use. Cool. But it was just another one of those starts for him, which seems to be happening to him more often than not on the road, which is something that's like one of those things that doesn't really matter, but also kind of does matter. What? I'll give you a little something that Gary brought up, and I, I think it was a really good point, was that I think like, I'm just counting right now. I think about more than half of the stadiums in Japan, in the MPB, are domed inside, so it's climate controlled. This is one of the first, one of the few times cold. in Kodai yeah. Senga's probably entire career that he has pitched in cold, windy weather like this. 
not making excuses, but I I, I think it's something that's interesting just to note that this is a completely different environment than the guys comfortable to pitching in. Something that he's he's going to learn to have to do because there's not a lot of dome stadiums in Major League Baseball, and you're if you're pitching in the playoffs, it's going to be cold and outside most of the time. So I'm glad if that's the issue, we're getting getting it out here now. But yeah, there's a on the road specifically, he seems to be a little bit less sharp. Yeah, and they're just this is one of the, another one of the starts that we saw seen a lot so far from Kodai this year, where there were long counts, there were battles. It was like getting a first pitch strike, but then struggling to stay ahead, not getting the whiffs. Something awful that happened this game as well. Seiya Suzuki, a countryman of Kodai Sanga, got the first hard hit ball off the ghost fork this year. We made it all the way to May twenty fourth. We got through I think eight starts for Kodai Sanga, nine starts, and the first time the pitch was hit above ninety five miles an hour, and it hit for a double. And I saw that I was like, ah, oh, one of the best stats in baseball has finally gone by the wayside, but. He kind of went back this start to how he was sequencing the starts before the Tampa Bay start. And we lauded him for the fact that he was using more colors and more sweepers early in the count and using that fastball to sneak up on people. But you kind of can't really just use a fastball to sneak up on people that often. Like once teams see that, like this is something that he did, like, all right, be ready for the fastball two strikes. I get that. So you got to kind of try to keep everyone off balance. But something interesting, it seemed like the Cubs did to kind of like adjust back to Kodai. High swing rate against Kodai at any start this year. And by far, at a much higher zone swing rate. So it seemed like, again, they were really good at picking up these pitches, what was coming next, and were really taking hacks at ones that were in there. And a lot of Oka outside, a lot of chase contact. So even when they were chasing, they were getting the bat and the ball a lot. And a big part of that was they had 24 foul balls in this game. And that is a part of, of O contact stat that Fangraphs keeps. Usually, his, like, in most of his starts, it sat like in the mid to low 40s. This was 65% of balls that were outside the strike zone they made contact with it's a ridiculous number and a lot of that comes from 24 foul balls we still got through five innings three runs got six strikeouts and 13 whiffs the five walks were too many but he didn't really allow many of them to come around to score like it was enough to win a game but it was just very infuriating from the hitting side in this game where we had no whiffs we had no strikeouts and we're just hitting super sharp ground balls everywhere and they're always fielders right there to take one from your tweet bad day to be a worm Bad day, day to be a worm. worm. A lot of hard, a lot of hard hit balls right into the ground. It was a frustrating one. It was a frustrating one too, especially because I mean, we'll we'll talk about Strowman on the mound now, I guess, because um, he obviously his his tenure didn't really end well here with the Mets in terms of how he left or how he felt perceived by the fan base and others. Uh, I mean, he, he pitched a good game. You got again, tip your cap. He he deserved to celebrate a little bit, but it seemed as if some people maybe took a, a little bit of extra. I don't know if offenses, but a little extra note of Marcus Stroman's uh, antics on the mound after he left the game, and we're not too happy about it. Yeah, and I mean, also there there is a part of this where this is there's a good chance this is the most important game that Marcus Stroman pitches the entire year, besides when the <laughs> Cubs come to City Field. Possibly the only other thing that the NL Central race is pretty wide open, but the Cubs probably need to get a little bit more out of most of the rest of their starting pitching. Stroman has had a good year, and he's a good pitcher. I'll never take that away from him. The guy, the guy always is, a good is, pitcher, always been a good pitcher, and he was just. He was very excited to leave the game after eight innings, and he was tweeting after the game like, "It was all right, all right, like cool, okay. Is this if this is what you wanted to do? You did it." Yeah, I mean that's that's the Strowman. That's the thing he does. That's the thing he does. We know it. He's a big fan of like he he likes to talk. He likes to talk. He he walked the walk. I mean, I, I can't yeah. I can't knock it. I can't knock it as much as I really 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 wanted to smack him around. I was really <laughs> hoping the Mets would just tee him up. Uh, did not happen. So. Yeah. Dang. I mean, sometimes, sometimes you only swing and miss twice, and then you don't get anything to show for it. It just happens once in a while. Like they yeah. say, it's better to be lucky than good. So no, no worries there. But move on to game and you three. Lose. Yeah, and you lose. Move on to game three. Had to salvage the series with a win. A sweep here would have been devastating after the five game winning streak. But luckily, 
We had <laughs> new minted stopper Carlos Carrasco on the mound. I said after his last start, I was very encouraged. I tweeted that people jumped down my throat. I talked about it on this podcast. People said that was crazy. And he came out there, gave up the home run the first inning. Of course. Of course he gave the home run the first <laughs> inning. You have to do that. You're not gonna get you're really you're not gonna get that excited that quickly, especially when the Mets get a run in the first inning. You can't get too high. You can't get too high in this world. But he really, really leaned on that split changeup, kind of like a call for last episode and how good it looked. You had 35% changeups, 33% fastballs, more changeups than fastballs. Very rare thing for Carrasco in his career, but something that could be useful. And 22% curveballs, a pitch that looked quite good in th- throwing to players on both sides of the plate. Changeup had five whiffs, curveball had four, and his fastball was sitting 92-93 all the way into the seventh inning. The last fastball he threw the whole game was his second fastest of the game. Incredible. And he was really good at dying that fastball up on the outer half against lefties, like sitting on that black. Huge start for Carrasco. He really could be the innings either that this team needs moving forward, the one that he was just a year ago, and it's a huge step in the right direction. There was that really big inning. What was it, the third or the fourth where he yeah. got into some trouble? And me and you were texting, and he, he got that the big out, ground got ball. out of that inning clean, no runs on the ground ball. And we both, like, we texted each other, like, wow, that was massive. And it felt like that was something that, like, kind of got him, like, over the hump a little bit. That felt like the the point of, like, contention of just, like, this is, this is the game right here. If he can get past this, he's going to be fine. He's kind of been in control outside of that first inning home run. He got past it, and like you said, I mean, the dude made it into the seventh inning for someone who, even myself, when I saw the first inning, I was like, ah, here we go again. Here we go again. Like, the first inning home run, it's it's crazy the rate he gives them up at, but he really did calm down, get his stuff down, and pretty much dominate these Cubs hitters. Yeah, Jerry Blevins made a great point in the postgame. I kind of agree with it, like, thinking back to that inning and watching it. It seemed like he worked to say Suzuki very carefully, and the way this Cubs yes. lineup is right now, like he's certainly by far the most feared. He should be the most feared hitter in this lineup. He's the one who could really do some damage. We felt it most of the series, but he was very careful to him through him a lot of the junk. He said, if you're, I'm going to get you out, you're going to get yourself out. Suzuki is very disciplined. He's very talented. He did not get himself out. And you got Mike Talkman right behind him. And Mike Talkman is incredible, incredible projection, uh, protection. Mike Trout, as we like to call him in some of these parts, but it was, it was nice to see Carrasco do that. And then he got out like almost every single consecutive battle the rest of the game. Like he was just cruising. And then he did go out after a single six and two thirds. Didn't get that seventh inning, but just an unbelievably huge start for him for what we need going forward. Yep. Being able to give us that length. That's something we've been just begging and pleading for. And we've, I mean, this series, theoretically, the pitchers like get, didn't go like two innings. Like they had been in the past. They just, they lost because the offense didn't really get enough runs in those games. The pitching, could have been better in game one and game two, but game three, Carlos Carrasco was so, so sharp. And then, of course, the bats came alive, which is just always so nice. So nice. It's amazing that the bat, when when we hit, how much more fun is it to watch these games? So much more fun. Credit to John for this stat. After the first inning, the Mets did get their run. We mentioned it before. Mentioned now 15 and three when scoring first. 15 and three. Yeah. When scoring first, that's incredible. Bailey had the first two RBIs of the game. Starling had a really timely two out, two run single that felt like it got his breathing room and kind of let everybody relax and able to do it. And then we had the speed duo of Jeff McNeil and Pete Alonzo yes. with a double steal. Shout out Buck for the call there. Got the ball through. It was with a shift too because Bailey was up and it looked like it kind of confused Jan Gomes a little bit and Patrick Wisdom, who doesn't doesn't play a pristine third base. We have to say that. But this no. ball was this ball was thrown closer to where the shortstop plays and the third baseman plays. Went all the way into the outfield. Jeff scored, got the fifth run, and then Pete hit the second home run of the series. Dude owns Wrigley Field. 19th of the year, 45th RBI, and it's only May 25th. This is the most home runs through the Mets' first 51 games. And the previous was set by Pete in 2019, tied with Dave Kingman in 1976. But 19 home runs through 51 games. 
I was literally about to tell you because I looked it up myself. I didn't realize John put it in the notes about what was Pete's pace in the you know rookie home run year that he broke the record. 51 games through, 17 home runs. He's at 19 right now. Swinging the bat really well. I know like the average is the average is low, but his OPS is like 900. So uh, don't care, don't care. Keep hitting, keep crushing it. The, the the home run swing is there. I love it when Pete's swinging for the fences. I hate when he's swinging for singles. That's not what he's there for. And he's been just lifting and carrying the ball so well, hitting it hard. It feels so, it, it's so good when Pete's swinging it like that. He's absolutely locked in with the power right now. You also know Pete's going well when he has a game where he did not get out. He wa- he hit the home run. He had a single, and he also walked twice. That's they didn't want to. That's they, good they, for the OPS right there. It's really good for the OPS because OPS matters and batting average really does not. Sorry, everybody. And then Nemo hit his big triple. Lindor had an RBS single after that, and then that's it. We just we just we took the lead. And when the Mets take a big lead like this, especially in a game that is like especially like on the road where people are uncomfortable, we get to wacky hours with uh, especially when it's the Keith the Keith and uh <laughs> the Keith and Gary booth. We talk about before the differences of like the duos, Gary and Ron, uh, Gary and Ron and Gary and Keith and the triple together. But when it's just Gary and Keith. We get to wacky hours. Keith audibly yawned in the eighth inning, which was such a beautiful moment. They were they they had to they had to get SNY to bring them their jackets. I think it was in the sixth. Gary kept talking about his SNY branded jacket. Them. Yeah, they couldn't zipper them. But Gary was like, this "SNY jacket, so amazing! Look at this SNY jacket, company man. Always respect Gary. He knows he knows the drill." <laughs> Keith said at one point, "We need to get these ten last outs so I can get out of the cold," which was pretty funny. Tucker Barnhart was pitching, throwing forty-five mile an hour. Chad, like I said before, and Gary was like. I see him throw harder from home plate to second. Like, what's what's he doing right now? This is ridiculous. And then they called they called Steve Gelbs a tenderfoot because he went inside and skipped the last three innings. Tenderfoot, like tenderfoot, is such that's something that you'll hear like from an uncle at like a barbecue. Like you'll never hear that yeah. like in, in happenstance from anyone from our generation. A tenderfoot. It's it's wacky hours. I love it. One of the f- things that I really liked in this game too is that the Mets booth for the game and the Cubs booth are right next to each other and they're separated by like, I mean, we've been upstairs at the City Field one, separated by like glass. You can see through, but there was like a curtain or like a, a piece of felt that was covering it and it, they took it off and like looked in and Boo Shambi, because I also had the Cubs one on just to see their wave night shows. Like, oh, I just saw Gary and Keith and then Keith immediately starts like taping up. He's putting it back up. He's like, I want to look at these guys. Get them out of here. <laughs> No, it's funny. And, and Boog was over in City Field on Sunday too, doing Sunday night baseball stuff. So it probably probably said hi then. Just funny that they got traveled together. But overall, nice way to finish off a series that started off disappointing. Kind of got the good feelings back. You got used to cold evenings and scoring a lot of runs, which is a perfect way to send you off to Denver, which is a perfect way to bring in John. Talk about the estimate from this series and give us it for the next series. John? I don't I, who even won. I don't I don't even know. I feel like it's you because I think there yeah. was some, some four, dingers four, being hit. Yeah. Four thirty four. Pete on Tuesday, baby. One early. All right, Pete. That was a nice one. Speaking of which, um, James, you had mentioned Pete owns Wrigley Field. And mm-hmm. I was just kind of like sitting, waiting, thinking. So I looked at the all time slugging percentage leaders at Wrigley Field, minimum fifty plate appearances, and obviously Wrigley Field goes over just about a century back. No one has a higher slugging percentage in the history of the stadium than Pete Alonzo. Wow. No one. And then here's what's crazier. So Pete's number one. That's great. I was going to share that regardless. Good note. Number four on that list is John Ulrud. And number oh. five is Ike Davis. So three wow. of the top five are Mets first baseman at one point or another, which is just a, a weird coincidence. But yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. That's that Mets first baseman sack. that like. That perfectly span like 30 years, too. That's amazing. And that's <laughs> those, those are two of your boys, Ike Davis and John Olerud. 
That is spot on. And honestly, like, I, I really think it's time now that people I've heard this, this starting to percolate this take, and it's not really a take. Like Pete Alonso is entering a, a situation where he is on track to be the best position player in the franchise's history. 100%. And mm-hmm. like, you know, Mark said, that's not hyperbole about Francisco Alvarez, what he was saying. It's not hyperbole to say that about Pete Alonso either. Nope. He's going to have the home run. He's going to have the home run title in like, what, two years maybe? Yeah. Knock on yeah, wood, course, give, give a knock. Course. Yeah, yeah we, we've, we've seen this before, so I'm not going to say anything like that. But Pete Alonso sure. plays really good baseball on a regular basis. and As long as you don't say it, James. I'll you, never say you, it. No, he's, yeah, he's, he, he, I like watching Pete Alonso play baseball. I'm not going to say anything definitive about it. But yeah, no, it's a true fact. Yeah, that's it. All you can do. Yeah, well, another good showing is 434-foot home run brings James to within one here. No, um, I think it's a tie. I, last, last time was within one. I think. I, no, we'll no, have no, to no. check the tapes. Check the tape. I'm, I'm no, because I was down two and I've won two in a row. Check back. Yeah, right, I know. that would make we'll, you check back. Check the tape, John. We'll check the tapes. We have. We have. It'd be, uh, it'd be nice if you wrote this down as the person who runs it. <laughs> I got. I got it all up here. I'm pretty sure you're <laughs> down you two. Don't. No, or you I'm not. I was down two before the last episode, but last the last Sunday was a whirlwind. So I can know. I can understand you not remembering. You know, not registering that night. Last Sunday was a whirlwind. That was 14 hours. Anyway, that's what I mean. Yeah. So the Mets going into Colorado. Um, another fun fact here for you guys: Brandon Nimmo has more home runs against the Rockies than the Atlanta Braves, and he's played about a third of the games against. Not that fun of a fact, John. You don't think so? <laughs> it's not a fun it's a fact. fact. <laughs> it's a fact. It's not fun. It's interesting to me. I mean, it's an interesting. Have... It's an interesting fact. Not fun. <laughs> I used the wrong Is word it... there. Yeah, you did. Numbers, man. Yeah, not well, words, man. Well, it's a thing. Brandon Nimmo does have more homers against the Rockies than the Braves. Obviously, grew up rooting for the Colorado Rockies. Um, so this is going to be a Brandon Nimmo-focused estimate. Luckily, it won't be a singular event estimate because this estimate was over after four innings <laughs> of baseball. And I kind of felt stupid about that, but oh well. I've done dumber things in my life. Um, so what we're going to go with here is Brandon Nimmo. We're going to go total hits, runs, and RBI in this three-game series against the Colorado Rockies. Okay. Okay. Wow, okay. Let me uh, let me go let me go grab paper and pencil. I, I forgot we do this. I got my whiteboard. Wow. I would have had a whiteboard handy for you, Mark, but we're not together right now. I do wish that the Mets were playing on Monday. I was looking, you know, thinking, what am I, I going to do Monday? Laying out my day, pull up the MLB app, and no Mets baseball on Monday. And I can't even hate watch the Yankees on Monday because they don't play until nine forty. They're in Seattle, so I guess I'm going to have to be a social human being on Monday, which. Yeah, God, gotta gotta hang out with friends. Go to a barbecue. You got any World plans? Is, um, got a barbecue with some friends Sunday, but just kind of staying chill. Not much, not much going on. Hits Another friend in town. RBI Shout out Ross, world, right? Dave Bednar's cousin. My buddy's in town. Gonna get to see him hang out for a few days. But yeah, very good. Hits that runs RBIs. Mark. Yep. Right, I'm gonna go. Now, while you guys ponder that, something else for you to ponder: Where do you rank the three barbecues? You got your Memorial Day barbecue that starts the summer. You got your July Fourth, the middle of summer, and then you got your Labor Day, which to me is the worst one because it means it's the end of summer. Um, but I do like I that love, weather the most. And football's I, I about to start that yeah, time of year. I'm, gonna, I'm a big Fourth of July question. guy. Yeah, Fourth of July has got to be one, and I think probably Memorial Day is so great because like the summer's at your fingertips, but yeah. But Labor Day is cool because like football's at your fingertips. But I think yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's probably Fourth of July, Memorial Day, Labor Day. I love you have these questions for us every episode. It's a nice little touch from the John, the John Variety Hour. <laughs> I won't go Got down any the, questions? Road, the path like last time at the end of the episode. I promise. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, that's that's why you probably forgot the record. You were thinking of that still. Yeah, exactly. John, John was hung up on Martha <laughs> still, Stewart last episode. Still can't episode. believe it. Still can't believe it. But <laughs> I've got I my number. Guess. Yeah, I do too. All right. All right. Ready? Three, two, one. Bang. 10. 12. Ooh. Ooh. I'm finally under. 11. 11, 11 is the really even. Yep. All right. All right. Well, I'm going to go check back last week's episode and uh, we'll come back. We'll know exactly where things stand uh, next next week on Sunday night. Yes. After, Sunday uh, night. Hopefully a, a series victory in Colorado. So that'd be great. We'll talk to you guys. Thanks, then. John. Thanks, John. See ya. Yeah. All right. Let's go Definitely. ahead and preview this Rocky series because I, t- I texted you about a really, really fun name that we are going to see in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And uh, let me tell you, let me tell you something. If you guys are old school listeners of the Messed Up podcast, you will remember this name probably better than maybe any other name because we had a lot of fun with him. He used to pitch for the Philadelphia Phillies. James, who's the old friend we're seeing out in Colorado besides Brad Hand? The second game of this Rocky series is going to be started by none other than Chase Anderson. Chase Anderson. Unbelievable, Chase Anderson. literally not a real name. That's one of those that you get on MLB The Show. You have your your draft classes coming in. You just finished your first year of your franchise. And they're like, here's here's the list of names. You have Nick Smith. You have Chase Anderson. You have Will Johnson. Which one are you picking? All of them are fake names. None of them are real. Chase Anderson is real in this scenario. We'll say. Found out he had a little little stop in Tampa Bay. What is that all about? Yeah, he's he's running a one one ERA right now, so we can't we can't mess with that. But Chase Anderson again, we're not no no can't def- can't defame the guy's career. He's put in more than seven years of MLB service time. That's not no that's not a joke right there. He's made millions of dollars. Good for Chase Anderson. He set up his family for generations. However, we need to annihilate him in Colorado. He need we need to hit the ball a million a million feet combined against Chase Anderson and and Connor Seabold. And uh, an Austin Gomber. It's a, it's a, it's a, I don't want to say anything about these pitchers for the Rockies. It's got a pitching this weekend, especially because Austin Gomber really, really shut us down in Queens. But there is, <laughs> I, I, I would like, I would like Scherzer, Seabold, and Verlander, Anderson to go a certain way. That's all. That's all I'm gonna say. Yeah, we'd like for them to win. I think, I think that's a fair statement. We sure, would like, it would. We'd like it to would see be, Mets win, and it would be preferable from my perspective for the Mets to win at least the first two games of the series. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, very, very preferable. And I mean, if we're getting crazy, you know, I'd like to win all three. But again, baby steps. For sure. And like something else fun to shout out. I think Jerks and Profar is on a 32 game on base streak right now as we head to Colorado. Yeah. No, yeah. He's he's he found it a little bit and he's hitting he's hitting the top of the order. 30 on base, though. Yeah, it's uh, the, the first the first 20 games were very poor. Very, very bad. And huh. I guess something clicked. He did, didn't even really have a spring training, so it kind of makes sense. But we saw this team recently, so it's not that much to shout out. You, the only guy who I think no. is interesting who wasn't we didn't really talk about last time, but he did have a good series, Brenton Doyle. He's just like a tools, tool, very toolsy young outfielder who's kind of making a name for himself right now. Their starting pitchers right now are mostly creative players. There's a guy named Carl Kaufman who's been getting runs through in this like that I can't Carl Kaufman with a K too, a double K, Carl Kaufman. Um there's not huh. yeah, no CJ Crone. He's on the IL, still no Brendan Rogers. Uh, Antonio Sensatello went back on the IL. Ryan Feltner went on the IL as well. Old friends that we saw recently. Let's just, I'd really, I'd prefer, I'd prefer to beat this team. Yeah. Oh, 
big preference, big preference to to win some games against the old Colorado Rockies in Denver. Uh, should be a lot of offense. There should be. We usually when you play there, there is uh, some thin air, big outfield. Yeah. I believe it's the biggest outfield in all of baseball. My service so area, tends, yeah, by a lot. Yes, so it tends to lead to more hits. Uh, the big misconception is about the home runs. It's I think still above average in home runs just because it's Colorado. But really where Colorado gets crazy is the hits, which makes it even crazier when people throw a no hitter in Colorado, which is just one of the craziest things that could ever happen. I think it's happened, what, twice? I believe Hideo Nomo did that, correct? And I'm not I sure. I think so. And, and Ubaldo. Did Ubaldo do it at home? Yeah, I think he did. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look up no hitters in Coors Field. There's definitely yeah. been, oh, no, it might just be Hideo Nomo. Yeah, I think it was Nomo. I remember Nomo doing it for sure. But yeah, that is definitely the common misconception about uh, playing Colorado. Like we also should note that they do have the second highest park factor for home runs, only behind Cincinnati Reds. But the other big misconception, just to end, let you guys out of here in like a nerdy, nerdy pitching rant, is that the thin air makes yeah, the course. ball travel further. That is true to a degree, but that's nowhere near as important to like how much hitters hit there, based on the fact that the air density drastically changes the way pitches move. Fastball carry and hop, curveball depth slider movement, like everything is significantly affected by by the how thin the air is. I heard an interview from Marco Gonzalez from years ago. I've talked about this a few times on the podcast where he grew up in in Colorado outside of Denver. And when he grew up, he didn't even learn a breaking ball because he knew that would just be like kind of a waste of time. So the rest of his career is a, the, the rest of his development as a player. He just like perfected two different changeups, a circle and a Vulcan to be like, I want these two different pitches because the air density won't affect their movement as much, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, we've always joked about how, like, man, once Herman Marquez leaves that that team, boy, oh boy, is he going to make a run at an award or something? He's going to be great. But yeah, it's just it's really hard to pitch there for a variety of different reasons. Um, and the Rockies, you know, they also they they don't really invest in pitching too much. It seems like so no, for sure. Hopefully, the Mets of- bats stay hot like they did against the Cubs. We'd like to see them continue to swing like, swing like that. I think. Yes, keep playing like that. It's also funny that everyone always says that about Rockies pitchers. And a guy like John Gray leaves, and he's still basically doing almost the same thing, game in and game out. And then a lot of people always say, you got to watch out for the Rockies hitters that leave. And almost every single guy who's left has been as good basically everywhere else, except for Trevor Story, who I don't know what's happened to that guy. Hopefully he gets that back. But yeah, go to Colorado, win a couple games. Let's let's have a good Memorial Day, everybody. Also breaking news, we have clarification on the estimate. James, you were right. It is a tie ball I game. Right. I know I was right. John, I mean, John is very excited to go to Denver, and I understand that. He really loves really loves all Denver offers, so it makes sense that he would be forgetful of that fact. <laughs> yes, so I, I don't think there's really anything else to really talk about here, right? I, th- I think we're pretty much wrapping it up. I do. We do have a new review on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Josh Doying. Actually, I, he reached out to me on Twitter the other day. He actually is doing something really cool where he is making like a like kids like bedtime stories about baseball players. And he does a lot about the Mets. He's a big Met fan. So if you guys want to check out Josh's stuff, I believe it's like bedtime New York Mets stories or bedtime stories Mets. You can go find him there. But he said, James and Mark balance sports talk with deeper analysis. And on top of all that, keep things fun. They may even be responsible for how the team is doing based on who's doing the intro. No pressure. Sorry, Josh. Josh, we let you down. I'm back. I especially love the interviews, whether getting those thoughtful responses from players or bringing on media and other personalities. They provide unique insight that helps support my fandom. Appreciate it. Josh, yeah. thank you. We've also, we've also had a few more that we didn't mention just because the team wasn't playing that well, and it felt weird to like sing our own praises when the Mets were struggling. But this is one by Brad, SD Mets fan. Just discovered you guys. Love it all. Interviewing has been great. Love the details of the pitchers' breakdowns. Great job, gents. But also... I don't want us to get too high. We did have a really negative interview come in. And I want to read it because I love the negative interviews. They're Listen, incredible. Keep it. 
Keep me grounded, man. Keep me grounded. My head was getting a little big there. This is a good one. <laughs> and this really takes shots at everyone here individually. So, Vito, hope you're listening. <laughs> Big City 157 said, poorly produced. The hosts talk a thousand miles an hour. There are 100 Mets podcasts out there, and this one ain't the one. Big City's his name. He can't be from New York. Otherwise, no. you would understand exactly what our, our, our miles per hour are with how we're talking. Yeah, we do talk fast, but that's where we're from. I know, James, you've made a conscious effort to try and slow down. Yeah, I'm really trying to. It's hard for me because I talk so fast my whole life. It's always been this way. Teachers have told me, friends have told me. It's, I don't think it's ever going to stop. Also, I just I kind of I kind of got funny like scrolling through these reviews the other day because I wanted to like find more negative ones because I love them. This is a great one from last year when we first started. I want to leave this out in this. Okay, all right, fine. <laughs> it's great, perfect. You scoundrels ended my favorite Mets podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, love I like being, being called, called a scoundrel. That's yeah, not, that's good. not good usually word. one thing that I'm being called. I've never been called a scoundrel before. So uh, shout out to that guy. Scou- yeah, I think I have a guess who that might be based on the word scoundrel being used. Yeah, it, was, it was D. Garrick. So shout you out, D. Garrick. All right. Well, that's a good place for us to wrap it up here on the Mets Up podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening and watching. Remember to follow us on all our social media at Mets Up, M-E-T-S-D-U-P, on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Shout out Vito, making some great Instagram reels for us where we've been posting over there. Shout out to Francisco Alvarez, liking one of our reels about him. Yes. Shout out to Francisco. That's how you, that's how you know he's paying attention, listening to the best podcast in the world right here. Uh, follow us. Nope, I said that. If you're looking for the YouTube video, go to the Mets YouTube channel. Subscribe over there. You'll be able to watch the video version of us. And if you're listening, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever it is, rating, review, download, subscribe, and you might get a shout out. Thank you guys so much for listening. Follow James on Twitter at James underscore Shiano. And follow me at Giraffe Mark with a C. We'll catch you after the Rocky series. Let's, let's go win one. Let's win one. Bye. Peace out. See you next time.